Fortify Your Faith. Kyle Butt is here to uh, present topics relative to that theme. And we are looking forward to Kyle's presentation. You may have noticed when you arrive, there's a number of books in the foyer on a couple of foyer tables, uh, apologetics, evidences type materials for your uh, continued study. Uh, look all of that material over. Uh, everything's identified. Uh, check out what's available. You might like to take some things home with you for uh, further study. By the way, Kyle's daughter is with us tonight. One of them, actually he only has one daughter. He has two, two sons and one daughter, Anna Claire. Where are you, Anna Claire? I'm looking for you. And, and uh, there she is, right back there. Okay. Anna Claire. We're, I've met Anna Claire already, and we're glad Anna Claire could, could come with, uh, with Kyle. By the way, a, a schedule of our services tomorrow and Sunday are posted on on. Uh, posters throughout the building. Mike mentioned we have, in addition to the materials, Kyle has brought tracks throughout the building uh, on various Bible subjects. Feel free to uh, check those out. And I need to mention the restroom situation. Uh, the men's restroom right back here is functional. The ladies is not. But there are additional restrooms down the hall, so uh, find your way down there. There's ushers in the back that can help you if you need uh, directions. Visiting with us tonight is uh, Brandon Hall. Brandon is a student at the uh, School of Preaching in Springfield, and he's going to lead us in prayer at the appropriate time, and then Rick Southern, one of our deacons here, will dismiss us. Glad to see all of you here tonight. Uh, stick around a little while after services. Uh, enjoy the fellowship one with another. Rex. <coughs> Can you hear me from here? Okay, I knew you wouldn't there. After the first song, we'll have the opening prayer. 154. Give me the Bible, star of gladness gleaming, to cheer the wanderer long and tempest tossed. No storms can hide that radiant, peaceful being, since Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Give me the Bible, holy message shining. Thy light shall guide me in the narrow way. Precept and promise, law and love combining. Till night shall vanish in eternal day. Give me the Bible when my heart is broken. When sin and grief have filled my soul with fear, give me the precious words by Jesus spoken. Hold a face lamp to show my Savior near. Give me the Bible, holy message shining. Thy light shall guide me in the narrow way. Precept and promise, law and love combining, till night shall vanish in eternal day. Give me the Bible, all my steps enlighten, teach me the danger of these realms below, that lamp of safety for the gloom shall brighten, 
that life alone the path of peace can show. Give me the Bible, holy message shining. Thy light shall guide me in the narrow way. Precept and promise, law and love combining, till night shall vanish in eternal day. Give me the Bible, lamp of life immortal, hold up that splendor by the open grave. Show me the light from heaven's shining portals. Show me the glory given Jordan's way. Give me the Bible, holy message shining. Thy light shall guide me in the narrow way. Precept and promise, love and love combining. Till night shall vanish in eternal day. Would you pray with me, please? Our Father in heaven, we come to you this evening and we want to thank you for all the many blessings you've given us, Father. Father, we ask that you be with each of us here as we go into this period of worship unto you, Father. Father, we ask that the things that are done here and said here are in accordance with thy will and done in spirit and in truth. Father, we ask that you be with all those this evening that are dealing with illnesses, Father, that you help comfort them and keep them and bring them back to their much-wanted health, Father, if it be thy will. Father, we ask that you be with the Speaker of the hour this evening, Father, that he may have a ready recollection of those things which he's prepared and that each of us here may take something from his message and apply it to our daily lives, Father, in our strengthening our faith to you. Father, we ask that you please be with our military men and women and the leaders of our country, Father, that you help them make the decisions that will always please you and glorify you, Father and protect our military men and women as they fight for our freedoms overseas. Father, we ask that you please forgive each of us of our sins, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please mark 744 for the invitation song, 744. When you have that mark, turn to 121, 121. Whate'er you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord. Do not in name of man or creed, do all in the name of the Lord. Do all in his name, do all in the name of the Lord. In word or deed, as God decreed, do all in the name of the Lord. Be not deceived by worldly greed, do all in the name of the Lord. 
The Spirit says in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord. Do all in his name, do all in the name of the Lord. In word or deed, as God decreed, do all in the name of the Lord. If you are toiling for a crown, do all in the name of the Lord. Oh, do not trust in world renown, do all in the name of the Lord. Do all in his name, do all in the name of the Lord. In word or deed, as God decreed, do all in the name of the Lord. Till toils and labors here are done, do all in the name of the Lord. Dear Christian friends, if you be one, do all in the name of the Lord. Do all in his name, do all in the name of the Lord. In word or deed, as God decreed, do all in the name of the Lord. In 1998, I was in the Ukraine, and we were doing some mission work there, and a preacher was explaining to me something that had happened while he was there in the Ukraine. He explained to me that the communist system had not allowed Christianity to spread in any kind of public manner, and once that started opening up, Preachers were going in, preaching the gospel, and he said one of those preachers from the Lord's Church had stood up and he had preached a lesson on the Bible and talked about what you needed to do to follow Christ. And he said afterward, a man came up to him with a single page that obviously was very old and folded and wrinkled, and he came up and he unfolded that page, and it was a page out of Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. And this man had a five-piece. That's a a piece of money that's worth about two and a half cents. And he brought it to the preacher, and he said, Here, I want you to have this piece of money. And the preacher, of course, didn't take the money, but he said, Why are you giving me this money or trying to? And the man said, I have hidden this single page of the Bible underneath my mattress for the last 20 years. And he said, when I found the person who could explain it to me, I had been saving this piece of money to give to him. I knew a lady in Montgomery, Alabama. She was probably about 78 years old when I knew her. We knew her only as... Sister King, her name was Corrine King, and she was in a nursing home right beside my house, about three miles in front of my house. And Sister King, she didn't have any teeth. It was kind of hard to understand what she would say when you would talk to her. But right beside her bed, there was an old maroon King James Version Bible that had been taped and retaped and retaped again. Half of the cover was off of it. The pages were so worn that some of the pages had 
Oh, it looked like pureed peas all over it, and some of the stuff was smudged out where you couldn't see it. But every single day, she would read that Bible, and the things that we could actually understand her telling us were when the people would come in to clean her room, she would try to talk to them about Jesus. Now, why, why is that? I mean, what in the world is it about a book that somebody keeps a single page of it under their mattress for 20 years? I mean, what is it about a book that a 78-year-old lady will have left everything in her life except that treasured copy of this message? Well, you know, they're not alone in their love for, or at least the having of the Bible. Do you know that in the United States of America, 90% of all of the people in the United States have a copy of the Bible. 40% of those, almost half of those, have four or more copies of the Bible. If I were to ask you, can you put your hand on a King James, a New King James, a Revised Standard, a New Revised Standard, an English Standard? Could you put your hand on various different copies or translations? Maybe your favorite translation, mine's a New King James. Maybe you've got four or five or six of those because some of them fit in your purse and some of them are a little bit bigger for your study Bible and some of them have some notes and you want a copy of all of those. So you just make sure you have one sometimes right by your bed so it's there when you go to sleep and then sometimes it's in your study. 90% of the people in the States have a Bible. You know, if you were to look on the New York Times best-selling list, at the very top of the New York Times best-selling list, every single week, you wouldn't see the Bible. You know why you wouldn't see the Bible? You would see a little asterisk on the top of a good New York Times best-selling list, and that asterisk would take you down to the bottom of a page where it says, Perennial Bestsellers Excluded. You know what perennial bestsellers excluded means? Perennials are things that come back over and over and over. You know, if you go to the store and buy mums, I have never planted the mums that I buy for, you know, fall decoration that I get from my wife, but they are perennial. You can take those mums and actually plant them. And what I like about them is you can mow over them with a push mower and <laughs> give them like a haircut. And then the next year they pop back up. It's pretty neat, isn't it? Perennial bestsellers, it just keeps coming back. You don't have to buy new mums every year, although most of us do because we tragically don't water the ones that we put on the porch do and they dry up and die, but you could plant them. Perennial bestsellers excluded. You know what that means? Oh, it means the Bible's the number one best-selling book every single week of every single month of every single year. The people just got tired of putting it on the New York Times bestselling list, and so they put that little asterisk that said perennial bestsellers excluded. It's the number one book sold in the world. I'm not talking about just in the country. If you were to look at how many Bibles have been produced since the invention of the printing press, you're looking at close to, they estimate, between 15 and 25 billion copies. Now let me tell you how that relates. Several years ago... There was a lady by the name of J.K. Rowling. She came out with a very famous series of books, the Harry Potter series. In fact, so famous were J.K. Rowling's books that people would buy a ticket to stand in line for four or five hours at midnight on the night that the next book would come out. And you would have lines that would wrap around the book buildings. 
from people who had bought the tickets weeks before to stand in line to buy the Harry Potter books. She had seven volumes of them. All seven volumes combined in a worldwide book-selling phenomenon have sold about 350 million copies. That's about one-third of one billion. The next closest book to the Bible is a little book of war by a man named Sun Tzu, a military, an Asian military general who wrote a tiny, it's almost 100 pages or so, they have been produced and distributed to the tune of about 900 million copies. Not even a billion. The Bible, about 15 to 25 billion copies. We don't know how many. It's hard to estimate. But the United Bible Society by itself since 1947 has put out 9 billion Bibles by itself. That's not talking about Thomas Nelson, Zondervan, Cambridge, you name it. Now, so the question is, why? I mean, why, uh, just incidentally, I thought you might like to know that the Bible's the number one shoplifted book in the United States of America. We hope it's the number one returned book, too, after people read it, but people steal it more than any other book. That's amazing to me. You can go into the dollar store and buy a copy for a dollar, but no, people are going to shoplift it. Why? Why is that? I'll tell you the, the reason. It's pretty simple. People claim... That the Bible is the word of God. Now the first question we're going to ask is why does it matter? And then we're going to ask, is it the word of God? Now the first thing that we're going to ask is why in the world would it matter if the Bible really is the word of God? Well, it's pretty simple. Let's put it like this. Suppose that there is a 14-year-old girl. Now, this is hypothetical. I know this doesn't happen in real life, but let's say it did. Suppose that there's a 14-year-old girl, and she is in her room, and she's talking on her telephone. She has her door closed, and her little 6-year-old brother barges into her room and says, Get off the phone. What does the 14-year-old teenage girl normally do when her 6-year-old brother storms into her room demands that she get off the phone. She says, oh, thank you, brother. I really appreciate you coming here with that wonderful message. Billy, I know that we just started talking at school today for the first time, but my brother just said, I need to get off the phone. Bye. And she hangs up on him, and that, that doesn't happen, does it? No, like I said, hypothetical. Work with me, all right? If her little brother comes in and tells her to get off the phone, she picks up the nearest thing that she can find, throws it at him, and says as she covers the phone, get out of here. That's what she does. Now let's say that the brother comes in and says, get off the phone, mom says. A little bit different message now. I mean, she still might be about it's aggravated, at least at the messenger, but something different happens, or at least it should happen, because there is some authority behind the statement. Now, the reason that it matters if the Bible is God's word is because it either has authority to tell you what to do, or it doesn't. 
Now, if it is God's word, if there really is an all-powerful creator, and that all-powerful creator put his message into the Bible, then like Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. I can tell you what to do. But if this Bible is not the word of God, if it is human invention, if it's a human creation, if some mere man wrote down that you needed to do this or that, well, with all due respect, who cares what some mere man has to say? They just don't have the authority to tell us what to do. It's interesting to me that we recognize people with authority or people that don't have authority on a fairly regular basis. Let me tell you My son was watching a basketball game the other day. My son is 12. He said he went to watch this basketball game. I think the team that was playing, they had 11-year-old boys that were on the team. And then there was the coach. And he said there was a fan who was marching up and down the sidelines of the game, yelling plays into the... Yelling plays. Let's see what we got here. This fan was yelling plays to the players. Hey, y'all need to set up this. The players weren't listening to him at all. The fan would call a timeout for this team. He would, he would get on the rest. Well, everybody totally ignored him. He wasn't a coach. He wasn't a player. And he wasn't a ref. And he was calling timeout for a team that he had zero authority to call a timeout for. You know, my son said everybody that looked at him, thought he was weird, and just kept on playing. You know, if that Bible's not really from God, we really ought to just think it's weird and just keep on living. But if it is from God, if it really does have authority behind it, then that changes the way we view it, doesn't it? So, in fact, the question of does it matter? Well, it matters because if we can prove that it's from God, then that means our Creator is explaining to us something that we do or do not need to do, and we should listen with our whole heart. But if you can't prove that it's from God, then it's like, well, it's like a fan trying to call a timeout and a basketball game where he just simply has no authority and so the first question is what does it matter well it matters if there's authority behind it the second question is can you prove it you know i think we've about halfway bought into the idea that you know we just can't really know if the bible's the word of god or not we think it is it's probably the word of god we got a strong feeling in our heart that it is but you just can't know stuff like that You know, that's not what the Bible says at all. In fact, Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. In the book of 1 John chapter 5, John was telling his writers, he said, these things I write to you that you may know that you have eternal life. This isn't something that we hope is the case. It's not something that might be the case. It's not something that's probably the case. Either it is. Or it's not. And you can know it, or you can't. And so our question tonight is, can you know that the Bible is the Word of God? You know, the first thing that most people do when you ask them, hey, do you know that the Bible is the Word of God? They say, yes, absolutely, I sure do. 
You say, okay, exciting answer, very enthusiastic. That's great. Can you tell me how you know that? They say, yeah, it says it is. Does the Bible say it's inspired? Oh, yeah. I mean, if you spend any time in your Bible at all, you probably understand that it says it almost to the point of redundancy. Now, you could go to some of the more famous verses that talk about this. You could go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. It says, All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Very famous verse on inspiration. You could go to... Second Peter chapter 1, look in verse about 19 and 20, where the Bible says, But no prophecy of scriptures, any private interpretation or origin, but holy men of God spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Be another great one. You could go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Look in verse 13. Paul said that when we came to you, we rejoiced that you received our word, not as the word of man, but as it is in truth, the word of God. Now, I don't, I don't know how you memorize or study your Bible. I memorize mine by where the stuff is found on the page. Lots of times I'll say to the audience, hey, if you look up at the right-hand corner, of your, and then I realize, no, I don't, yours is probably not even on the same page, but I have bought every New King James Thomas Nelson 745 Royal Reference Edition that I can find. In fact, some of them have cost me quite a bit. I think they're only... I, I found five of them on the Internet in the last, oh, I'm talking 10 years or so. Because this is where I have studied and read, and I know where the stuff is on this page. My 745B, it was a 745B because it came but I've had it, uh, let me see if I can, it came this color right here. But this is the third time that I've had it refinished or whatever. They put a new case on it for me. So now it's it was black and then black again, but it started burgundy. Now. My 745B, Thomas Nelson, New King James, has about 1,350 pages in it, counting just a few pages of concordance at the back. Why is that important? Here's why it's important. Because the Bible, in some shape, form, or fashion, claims to be inspired over 2,800 times. Now, that's on average. I wasn't a math major for sure, but I can do a little bit of math and tell you that's about two times per page that this book claims the God of all of creation wrote it. Two times per page. If you were to go to the book of Jeremiah, you'd find 500 times, actually 540-something, I think, that the Bible says in the book of Jeremiah, and the Lord said, and God spoke, and God said, and the word of the Lord came to, and the burden of the Lord came to, and God... 540 times in a single prophet. Now, whoever wrote the Bible wanted you to think that God wrote it. At least they claimed that God wrote it over two times per page. Now, in one sense, if the Bible is God's Word, you would expect it to say it is. I mean, you couldn't... If a mother sent a six-year-old into his sister's room and said, you go tell her to come down here, but don't tell her I said it. Well, you could see the problem there. And so whoever wrote the Bible is sending you the message that they want you to think that God wrote it. Now here's the problem though. You know, I, I say it lots of times. When I ask a person, do you know that the Bible is the Word of God? They say, yes, yes we do. And I say, how do you? And they say, well it says it is. 
All right, now check this. My name is Kyle Butt, and I'm the president of the United States of America. There's one president of the United States of America. His name is Kyle Kyle Butt is my name. I'm the president of these United States of America. What if I said that 2,800 times in about 2,500 different ways? Would that convince you that I'm the president of the United States of America? And if you were to say, no, Kyle, that, that, but then I said, yeah, but I said I was. I mean, I claim to be the United States president, and you should believe that. Well, you know what I'm getting at, I think. Are there other books in the world that claim to be written by God, the creator of the universe? Well, sure there are. You know, if you were to ask a Muslim, does the Quran claim to be written by Allah, the creator of the world? They would say absolutely positively. If you were to ask a Mormon, does the Book of Mormon claim to be the inspired word of the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament? The person who believes in the Book of Mormon would say yes. Absolutely. Do you know the Hindu Vedas, the religious writings behind the Hindu religion, claim to be inspired by the Creator? There are at least nine different books that make a serious claim to inspiration. They all say they're inspired. Now what do you do? You're a Christian. You've been basing your life on this book that you say is the inspired Word of God. Somebody just asked you, do you believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God? You said, yeah, I know it is. It says it is. They say, oh, mine doesn't. Now what do you say? I'll tell you what I find most of the time. Most of the time when I present that challenge to a person, they say, well, I, I know the answer to this. Hey, you, you've got to believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God by faith. Now that sounds good at first, doesn't it? Because you go over to Hebrews chapter 11, and the Bible says that if a person wants to be pleasing to God in verse 6, then he has to have faith. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, must believe that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Faith is a great thing in the Bible, isn't it? Absolutely. In fact, all of Hebrews chapter 11 is about faith. Now, by faith, hope, and love, these three, if you were to look through the Bible and ask the simple question, do you have to have faith? Yes, absolutely, positively. Faith is a great idea. Here's the problem. The problem with that is most people misunderstand what biblical faith is. Because then when you say, oh yeah, hey, you do have to have faith, what do you mean by that? They say, well, I, I, I just feel it is. I just know it is. I've just got such a firm feeling in my heart. I just am so convinced that's got to be enough evidence for the Bible being the inspired Word of God. You know, if you were to look up the concept of faith in your average dictionary in English, go to Noah Webster's Dictionary, and it will say this. A firm belief in something you cannot prove. The American Heritage Dictionary says, a firm belief, now catch this, in something that you know is not true. You know what most people think? Most people think faith is if you really feel it in your heart deeply enough, then that is all that you need. I was reading David Copperfield the other day by, oh, who, what's his name, Charles Dickens? Yeah, okay. 
David Copperfield, the main guy in it, said, I had believed this for so long, it had to be true. Now you think about that. I believed it for so long, it had to be true. Let me tell you what happened to a good friend of mine. I had a good friend of mine who was he was going to start lifting weights. He was going to start trying to bulk up, get pretty big, and he was looking to add some pounds for muscle. And to do that, all the people he talked to said, well, you got to get some protein in you. He said, well, what, what kind of protein? Where can I go about getting some protein? They said, let me tell you what. They said, pinto beans are full of protein. He said, they are nature's little protein pellets. They are the most protein-packed lentils you'll ever get your hands on, and you need to eat as many of those as possible. So he said he did. said he started eating pinto beans, and just, he didn't like them. But he thought, hey, if this is protein, and he was eating pinto beans, and every one he put in his mouth, he thought with all of his heart that he was eating protein pellets from nature's own garden. Well, then about two years into it, he'd been eating pinto beans about every single meal that he can get his hand on a thing of pinto beans. About two years into it, he decides he's going to look on the back and just see how much protein is packing these pintos. Oh, you know what he finds? Pinto beans don't have protein in them. They're carbohydrates. Almost straight carbs, hardly a gram of protein in a pinto bean at all. And for two solid years, he'd been eating pinto beans every meal because he thought deep down in his heart that they had protein in them. Well, let me change it a little bit and let's get a little more serious. Several years ago, I was just doing a lecture at Polishing the Pulpit and I did a little research on the Heaven's Gate cult. The Heaven's Gate cult, when the Hale-Bopp comet was coming over in the 90s, their teacher said that if you will go out and buy a brand new pair of Nike shoes and take this poison and cover yourself with a purple sheet-like substance... Right when the Hellbop comet comes over, if you'll kill yourself and you'll be dressed in that attire, there is a spaceship that is following the Hellbop comet that will suck your soul up into it and you will reach the next phase of human evolution if you die at that particular time aiming for that spaceship. And 39 people believed that with all of their heart and committed mass suicide to get on a spaceship that was tailing the Hellbop Comet. They thought. But there wasn't one, was there? No, but didn't they really feel it in their heart? Didn't they feel it so strongly? That they killed themselves? I think you're starting to see what the problem with I feel it so strongly in my heart is. Well, it's just not the biblical definition of faith. never has been. Let me show you how the biblical definition of faith works. Jesus Christ is on a boat. He's sleeping on the second level. The Sea of Galilee has become so tumultuous that seasoned fishermen believe they are about to die. 
and they rush down to the second deck of this fishing craft, it was probably rocking back and forth on 10, 15, 20 feet waves for Peter and Andrew and James and John who had been on the Sea of Galilee their entire lives, who had probably watched as new fishermen had come on the deck and gotten seasick in stuff that Peter, Andrew, James, and John would have acted like was a kiddie pool wave. These guys were seasoned fishermen. They felt like they were about to die maybe for the first time in their whole lives on the Sea of Galilee. They rush down to Jesus because he doesn't seem concerned and they wake him up and they say, Master, don't you care what I And he says, Oh, you of little faith. Now, it amazes me how calm Jesus is in this particular situation. He walks up to the top of the deck. He looks out at the Sea of Galilee, the wind, the waves, and he says, peace, be still. Immediately when he says it, the waves stop, the wind ceases. It's not a gradual five-minute slowing down process. It's immediate. Now, Jesus said that his followers should believe he is the Son of God by faith. What does that mean? Does that mean that they should have a warm, fuzzy feeling in their heart and that's what they should base their following of Jesus on? Does it mean that as long as they felt it real sincerely and were following him around, then that is what they should... No, because Jesus explained to us exactly what it meant to understand he's the Son of God by faith. Maybe you'll recall when he came and started his preaching ministry... He recognized a lot of people weren't going to believe in him. And he said, don't believe in me because of my words. Believe in me because the works that I do. And he said, if I didn't do the works that I'm doing, then you wouldn't have to believe in me. But I am doing these works. And so you've got to make a decision about me based on what I say backed up by these works that I'm doing. And if that weren't enough, Peter said in, oh, I believe it's 2 Peter chapter 1, about verse 16, he said, we hadn't followed cunningly devised fables, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty when a voice came out of heaven and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So here we've got Jesus' word for it. Now we have the works that Jesus is doing. Jesus is causing blind people to see. He's causing lame people to walk. He's walking up to a tomb, and there's been a man who is dead for four days. And Marshall Keeble used to say, you know why he said Lazarus come forth and called him by name? Because if he would have just said dead come forth, everybody within earshot would have rose up and come out of the grave. He had to name him specifically so everybody didn't come up. You got Jesus raising dead people? You've got him stopping the funeral procession. The widow of Nain's son is there. He tells that young man to rise, brings a 12-year-old girl back to life. People see this. Oh, and then they're at his baptism, and a voice comes out of heaven that says, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So you've got his own word. You've got the deeds that he's doing. You've got God speaking from heaven. 
Oh, and then if you were to look just before there in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, we now have the prophetic word made more sure. There were statements in the Old Testament that had been written a thousand years before Jesus stepped foot on the earth, and they detailed everything that he was going to do in his life. The prophecy that was spoken about Jesus in the Old Testament. So now you got Jesus' word, you got the works that he's doing, you got God speaking from heaven, you got the prophecy from the Old Testament, and then he adds to that his own prophecy and says, If you destroy this temple in three days, I'll build it back. And everybody said, What well, it took forty two years to build the temple? And the Bible explains that he wasn't talking about the temple of Herod, but he was talking about his body. In fact, so clear was it that when they killed him on that cross and they buried him, his enemies went to Pilate and said, This deceiver said that in three days he's going to rise again. Will you give us a detachment of troops so that we can station him at the tomb so that he doesn't rise, so that his disciples don't come steal him and the last deception be worse than the first? So sure, Pilate said, You got soldiers. Go and make it as secure as you know how. And they did, sure enough, make it as secure as they knew how. And Jesus came back from the grave anyway because, of course, a handful of soldiers wasn't going to stop the Savior of the world from fulfilling the prophecy that had been laid down a thousand years before he came. Jesus comes back from the grave. And then in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, it says, And he presented himself alive by many infallible proofs. Now, what's an infallible proof? It's a piece of evidence that if you are thinking correctly, you cannot come to the wrong conclusion. When Jesus says, I'm going to rise in three days, and he comes back from the grave, and he says, here I am, touch my body. That is an infallible proof that shows that Jesus Christ is exactly who he says he is. Now, Jesus wasn't asking anybody to believe in him because of a warm, fuzzy feeling in their heart. He said, you've got all of this evidence. Now, you come to the next right conclusion, and that conclusion is... I am God, and all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, apply that to the Bible. Why in the world should you believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God? Not because your grandmama told you, and she makes the best fried pies you've ever tasted, and she's the best woman you've ever known, and hey, if it was good enough for grandmama, it's good enough for me. It's not going to work. Because do you know that Muslims would say, my grandmother and my great-grandmother and my great-great-grandmother were all Muslims who said that the Holy Quran, that's what they'd say, it's not at all, but that's what they'd say, is the inspired word of Allah? just doesn't work, does it? So what do you got to do? What do you have to do to nail down the inspiration of the Bible? Well, it's fairly fairly simple. And we're going to do that for the rest of this weekend. What you have to do is show that the Bible contains things that are superhuman. You have to show that the Bible has qualities and characteristics that no human being could possibly have devised on his own. Do you know every other book that makes claims to the inspiration, to inspiration, you can point out problems, errors, and you can show that they don't have divine characteristics not the bible the bible doesn't have errors doesn't have mistakes and the bible is filled with things that no other book in the world can do that's what we're going to be looking at we're going to show that the bible has in it accurate predictive prophecy do you know that every single time that the bible has predicted anything in the future it is always 100 percent 
right. It's never made a mistake. It's never missed it by one or two. You know how remarkable that is? Let me, let me just tell you how remarkable that is. Do you know if you were 51% right, you could make $1 million a day on Wall Street? That's all you'd have to do is be one more percent right than you are wrong, and you could make a million dollars a day on Wall Street. The Bible's not 51% right when it talks predictive prophecy. It's not 60, 70, 80, 92. It's 100% right. You could talk about the scientific accuracy of the Bible, how there are things in the Bible that were so scientifically correct, we didn't learn about how accurate they were for 3,000 years after this book was written. That's what we're going to do on Sunday morning. People have accused the Bible of contradicting itself. They've said that one Bible writer right here wrote something, another Bible writer over here wrote something else, and they're contradicting. That's not true. We're going to show that that's not true. But you know, every other book of substance has problems like that. If you were to look at the book of Josephus, the first century historian, he'll write something over here, and then he'll write something over here that contradicts his own self, and it's not even two different writers. And then he'll write something over here that Herodotus wrote over here, and it'll contradict Herodotus. Humans make mistakes. You know what my wife says about me? She says, Kyle, you are the most confidently wrong person I have ever seen. But let me tell you what I mean by that. For just in the last year, for six, I've been married 16 years now, and every single time my wife and I have ever shaken on a fact, I have been dead wrong, and my wife has been exactly right for 16 years. Now, I will say something like, I know we went bowling on that night. She'll say, Kyle, we did not go bowling then. I'll say, I know we did. I scored a 192. And I'm exaggerating. But I will say, yeah, I know we bowled that night. She said, Kyle, we didn't go bowling. We were at the football game. I said, we were not at the football game. She said, I said, all right, you're on. Yeah, we bowled. She'll call so-and-so and she'll say, uh, do you remember us uh, being at the, where, wherever it was she said we were? Guess what? For 16 years, every single time we shook on it, she was exactly right. In the last year, I got one right. One. And the streak was ended. But now, I'm, I'm fairly, fairly intelligent and try to keep up with stuff. And I have written uh, 25 books or so. And you know what I have to do to every single one of those books? I mean, I've written little bitty kids books that are 300 words. You wouldn't think a man could mess up in 300 words, would you? I'm great at it. I've made more mistakes in writing. I've had to go back and make second editions and change this and change that. You know what? There's no second edition to this. It's never once has any person proven a single legitimate mistake. That's superhuman. Nobody's ever seen anything like it. We could do that, and that's what we're going to do for the rest of this weekend. It's going to be an exciting adventure, I find it. I think it's so thrilling to see that. Now, a lot of you, if you're here instead of a ball game of two teams that are 5-0, and oh, then you're here because you probably already believe that that Bible is the inspired Word of God. And I'll tell you what we're going to do for the rest of the weekend. We're going to we're going to strengthen that faith, that faith that's based on evidence. We're going to give you more evidence, and you're going to have a stronger faith, I think, by the end of the weekend. But let me tell you what you really need to do. What you really need to do is treat the Bible like you say you think it is. Let me tell you what I mean by that. 
If I were to ask any one of you in this auditorium, this evening, do you believe the Bible is the inspired word of God? Most every single one of you, 99% of you are going to say yes. Now, uh, let's just ask a couple more questions. Something like this. How much time does the average American spend watching television every day? Oh, you know, 90% of all Americans have a Bible. 40% of those have four or more Bibles. If you were to ask them to believe the Bible's word of God, they say yes. You know how much time the average American spends watching television? When I started talking about the subject, it was three hours and 46 minutes of television a day. Now it's about four hours and 11 minutes of television every single day. The new stat with new phones that have come in in about the last five years is that if you have a young person between the ages of 8 and 12, that young person is spending approximately 7 to 8 hours a day on that phone or iPad or another electronic device. And if they're between the ages of 12 and 18, they're spending some 10 hours a day texting, looking at their iPad, talking on their phone, or watching television on some type of screen. Do you know what I have been so miserably disappointed by? Early on when I started doing what I'm doing, been doing it now for about 16 years, I don't do this anymore. It's just too embarrassing. You can't do it anymore. I did it for about the first two years and realized I've got to stop. I would just ask for a show of hands, which I am not at all tonight, and would just say, hey, how many of you in here have ever read the Bible all the way through? You know, you'd have people that would be sitting in those pews that would have been Christians for the last 20 years. They're reading on at least enough level to read the Bible. Been a Christian for 20 years. They've claimed that the Bible's the inspired Word of God, that they're basing their life on it. And they couldn't raise their hand to say that they've read it all the way through. Well, it's just so long. Garbage. That's not true. Do you know that if you read at standard pulpit speed, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience... You read it at standard pulpit speed. You can read it in 72 hours. Now you say, oh, well, 72 hours is quite a bit. Well, let's break that down. Do you know it? four hours of television a day, by the end of a week, you have watched 28 hours. By the end of two weeks, 56. By the end of three weeks, you have watched... I don't know. I stop at 56. It's somewhere above 72, I know. (laughs) You just don't have time. It's just too long. You know, if you spent 12 minutes a day reading your Bible... You would read it through in a year. Now, you want to get radical. Just go nuts and go crazy and act, act like you really believe the Bible is the Word of God. Cut out half of your television time if you're an average American. Watch TV two hours a day. Keep it. Keep your two hours of television a day. And just read the Bible. The other two, you're going to read the Bible through about ten times a year if you just cut half your television time out. Now, what's that mean? Let me put it in a little more practical point. There's a video on YouTube. You can watch it. I deal with skeptics on a regular basis, people who don't believe that the Bible is the Word of God. How do you think it sounds to a person when you go up to them and you say, hey, you need to be a Christian? Say, why? You say, well, the Bible talks all about this. And the person says, really? That's that's real interesting. You ever read it? 
You're asking me to change everything about my life. You're asking me to try to be like you. You're saying that you base all of that on this book. Have you ever read the book? How do you think it comes across to a, an atheist, to an unbeliever? You've been a Christian five, ten years, and he asks you if you've read the Bible, and you say, well, I mean, I had... You, well, you just start stammering. You start stuttering. There's a video on the Internet. It's about a group that... They're a... a secular group, they're a group of atheists, and on a university campus, they have a smut for smut swap, they call it. It's nothing of the sort, but they say if you'll bring in a Bible or another religious book, like a Quran or something like that, we'll give you a pornographic magazine. Because they say, Bible's got about the same stuff in it as a pornographic magazine has, and so you bring us a Bible, we'll swap you for a porn magazine. Now, they had about eight takers, it wasn't a big turnout, but... The video shows this one young man standing there with a sign, holding a sign that says that the Bible is the Word of God, that Jesus Christ is God's Son, and he is protesting this smut for smut event. And it looks like the president of this organization, this atheistic organization, comes over to him and says, Hey, see you've got a sign there. See you're defending the Bible. So do you really believe the Bible? I says, Absolutely. He says, really? You ever read it? I mean, all of it? You know what happened? That guy's got a sign right there. It's on video for the world to see. Now, hold on before we explain what happens to this guy. What if you were there? What if it was you standing up for the Bible and the guy comes to you and says, have you read it? Now, let's don't pretend like it's easy to read. I mean, you get in over into Leviticus, and it starts rattling off what you've got to do for all the sacrifices. And look, it's not going to be the most fun thing you're ever going to do. We understand that. What good thing that's worth doing is ever the most fun thing to do? Is giving birth to a child fun? Is working hard every day to make a decent living fun? Is keeping yourself in decent physical shape fun? Folks, if you want to throw fun on it and say, well, I'm not going to do it unless it's not fun, which is what our society does a lot. Well, no, you're not going to have fun reading your Bible. Now, I'll tell you what you are going to do. You're going to become a better person, and you're going to get stronger spiritually, and you're going to become a bigger personality, and you're going to get closer to your God. And there's going to be all kinds of great stuff that's going to happen. But if you're just doing it for kicks, well, you're going to quit about Leviticus. Now, if you were standing here and the president of the secular society had asked you if you've read your Bible for the world to see what happens. Well, this guy. You, you could almost not even see him shake. It was just a barely little shake. Starts rolling up his sign. Starts walking off. You think the atheist let him walk on? No, chased him. Well, the parts of it that you hadn't read are the parts that are full of garbage. If you'd read your Bible, you'd understand that the God of the Bible just up one side and down the other. How's that come across when you say, I believe the Bible to be the Word of God and I am basing my whole life on it? 
And then when somebody asks you, really? Really? How much time do you spend with it? You know, I've heard people say, well, I just don't read. Okay, great. You know what you can do? Put it on your iPad or your iPhone or some type of audio device and you can listen to it while you're driving a tractor. You can listen to it while you're driving to school before you go to teach. You can listen to it. I've got a program that lets me play it in, oh, I can play it at standard pulpits. The Stephen, oh, Stephen Johnson reads the New King James. His voice is as slow as Christmas. He reads it like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I'm thinking, Stephen, come on, man, you got to go fast. So I found me a program. It's called Language Player. I can speed it up as fast as I want to two times as fast. I can get it going. In the beginning, God created I mean, I can get it going twice as fast, but I normally speed it up to 1.3 or 1.5 times as fast. And I can listen to that Bible going anywhere in this country on the road. And I've got a little wire that plugs. I thought this was the greatest thing ever. Plugs straight into my phone, and it's just a little auxiliary cable plugs straight into my car. So it just makes my car speakers like a phone speaker. Boom, I pull it up, and I can play it just right there. The I don't read is not an excuse. Now, here's what I find very interesting. Jesus Christ says, On the day of judgment, whoever has been unashamed of me and my words, on the day of judgment of that man or woman, I will not be ashamed. But whoever has been ashamed of me and my words on the day of judgment of that man, I'll be ashamed. Can you imagine standing before God, having been put in a country where you have more access to his word than any country in the history of the world? And not knowing God's word enough to know where you should stand on this issue or that issue. Tell you what's exciting about the word of God. What's exciting about the word of God is the Bible explains to you that it doesn't change. It says heaven and earth are going to pass away, but my words will never pass away. Uh, if you were to look in First Peter, he would explain to you that you haven't been born again of corruptible seed by silver and gold and things that perish, but you've been born again by the Word of God which is living and does not change. Let me tell you what that means. 2,000 years ago, on the day of Pentecost, a man by the name of Peter, speaking through inspiration, carried along by the Holy Spirit, when the people found out what they needed, what they had done, crucified the Son of God. They said to Peter in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, 36 men and brethren, what shall we do? You know what the natural response to finding out that you've crucified God is? Asking how to make it right. You know what Peter said 2,000 years ago approximately? Repent and be baptized every single one of you for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to as many as are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Do you know who as many as afar off is? 2,000 years later in Lebanon, Missouri, on September the 26th. 26th? I don't know. I'd have to ask my wife. She'd know. Guarantee you. September 20-something. 
fifth. You know that message is still just as powerful today as it was 2,000 years ago. And what puts you in the saved body of Jesus Christ today is the same thing that put 3,000 people there on the day of Pentecost. They repented and they were baptized. And the Bible said on that day the Lord added them to the church and they were saved. You want to do that? Hadn't changed. Still God's Word, still the same message. You could do that tonight, and the Bible says the Lord would add you to His church tonight. If you need to respond to the Lord's invitation, I hope you will, as we stand and as we sing. Someday you'll answer the question of life. What will your answer be? What will it be? What will it be? Where will you spend your eternity? What will it be? Oh, what will it be? What will your answer be? Sadly, you'll stand if you're unprepared. Trembling, you'll fall on your knees. Facing the sentence of life or of death, what will that sentence be? What will it be? What will it be? Where will you spend your eternity? What will it be? Oh, what will it be? What will your answer be? Now is the time to prepare, my friend. Make your soul spotless and free. Washed in the blood of the crucified one. He will your answer be, what will it be, what will it be, where will you spend your eternity, what will it be, oh what will it be, what will your answer be.
And then you can go to our website, type in, is the Bible from God? And all six of these lessons will come up, and you can watch them free on the internet anytime you want. And so we just want this material and the Word of God and the truth about God's Word to spread as far and as wide as possible. So we try to make it available in every avenue, every venue, every format that we can to help people make sure they get it the way that they're used to getting it or the way that they get it the best. Very thankful for your presence here tonight. No, you could have chosen all kinds of other things to do, but you chose to gather with the saints and to hear a message from God's Word and to encourage others, and I greatly, greatly appreciate that. Thank you very much, and God bless you. Thank you, Kyle. I want to come back tomorrow night and uh, encourage all of you to do so as well. That's apologeticspress.org, the website. And uh, we have a link to that website on our website, <coughs> Church of Christ. Uh, either one of those will get you to a lot of information at Apologetics Press. Brother Dave Miller, Kyle Butt, and others doing a great work uh, in the matters of apologetics and evidences. And uh, you'll benefit greatly from uh, that website and the information there that will help you not only fortify your own faith, but equally important, share the good news and the evidence for it with others. Rex is going to lead us in a closing hymn. 611. 611. Come back tomorrow night, 6 o'clock. Kyle will present a message then. We'll have a, a, a break, and then at 7 o'clock he'll present a single, uh, a, a, a second message, I should say. do want to mention uh, Angie Weiss uh, asked for our prayers. One of the members here at South Highway 5, she's having some pancreas problems again. Angie Weiss, remember her in our prayers. Uh, Bob Marchand has a serious uh, cancer situation, uh, very, very serious. We want to keep the Bob Marchand family in our prayers. Uh, Millie Rubel's funeral is tomorrow morning. Millie, one of the members uh, here at South Highway 5 for a number of years. We want to keep her family in our prayers as well. Mike mentioned that CDs of these messages are available. See Rodney, one of our deacons, there in the foyer. He'll get you fixed up if you'd like copies. And for the members here, it doesn't show it on the posters, the brochures, but we will have our regular Sunday evening worship assembly at 6 o'clock Sunday evening. All right, Rex. Rick Southern will close us out with the prayer after the song. First and last. Take the name of Jesus with you, child of sorrow and of woe. It will joy and comfort give you. Take it then wherever you go. Precious name, oh how sweet, hope of earth and joy of heaven. Precious name, oh how sweet, hope of earth and joy of heaven. At the name of Jesus bowing, falling prostrate at his feet, King of kings in heaven will crown him. When our journey is complete, precious name, oh, how sweet.
hope of earth and joy of heaven, precious name.